I'm Mark Roseman, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Joanna Burke, Professor of History at Birkbeck College, University of London. She was born in New Zealand and grew up as the child of missionary parents. She's a prolific writer whose work is remarkable for its ability to go where most historians have feared to tread. Joanna Burke uses history to get at big questions at the heart of our contemporary experience, including fear, war, rape, and the boundaries of the human. Her recent books include What It Means to Be Human, The Story of Pain from Prayers to Painkillers, and Deep Violence, Military Violence, War Play, and The Social Life of Weapons. We're going to talk about these books and what we can learn from them today on Profiles. Joanna Burke, thank you so much for being here. Hi, it's really exciting. I keep being struck in your work by voices from the past that you've uncovered that sound so contemporary. There's a, a, a crime expert talking about terrorism who could be writing yesterday but turns out to be a policeman from 1889. Are you surprised at how many of our own concerns seem to be echoed or anticipated in the sources you uncover? I think one of the really exciting things about being an historian is precisely that when we're when we're going through those archival materials or reading a newspaper from the past or reading a memoir or letter or a diary, sometimes when we hear their voice, it sounds like someone we know or someone today. And other times, it's like this completely different universe that we're kind of exploring and delving into. And that's why I think history is so exciting, particularly at this moment in time when there's such important important things on our own society that we're all kind of grappling with. So the stories that we can uncover from the past actually are really fun and disturbing and interesting ways of forcing us to relook at our own situation. So in other words, sometimes it seems familiar, but sometimes it, it, it feels it really does feel like a different country. And uh, when you say that, I'm reminded in what it means to be human, where you open with a letter from, I think, 1872, where an earnest Englishwoman asks, are women animals? And suddenly you think, well, you know, where are we? Yeah, I mean, this letter was a wonderful find for me. It's a letter, as you said, 1872, where, and it's entitled, Are Women Animals? And basically, and it's signed by someone called an earnest Englishwoman. We don't actually know who she is. But it's a fantastic um, letter in that she's saying, um, she's saying, OK, you don't want to give us the vote. Okay, your suffrage was going through at that period, and they had, the government had voted against it. She says, "But don't you realize that you know, women are treated worse than animals in our society?" And she went through these cases that showed that basically, if you were an animal, you would actually be treated better in law than if you were a, a woman. And she said, "Okay, you don't want to change legislation where it says man, you know, man shall have the vote, to meaning men and women. But can you please change legislation where it says animal?" to mean animals and women because then we'd be better off. And it's a wonderful letter and it's kind of things like that that really spark up in history. So are you most excited where you find the points of common ground or are you most excited where you find a strange universe that seems to follow completely different rules? I kind of don't like this idea that the past is a foreign country. 
I don't like it partly because it kind of puts the historian into this position as a kind of tourist who enters into this, goes into this other world and then comes back out again. And I actually don't think that's the way history works. I actually think that we are all kind of involved in this, that some of us are in the past and some of the past is in us. So it's it's a much more, if you like, um, interactive thing. And I think that's what the historian really does with the, with, with the material. I think many historians stick to the safe ground of the small period of time that they have become experts on. But in your case, many of the issues that you look at, like fear of terrorism or the role of the military, reflect very contemporary concerns. So what is it that the historian can tell us about these issues in our own time that somebody who's merely looking at the present can't do? I think we all, both people who look at things in the present and people who look at things in the past, we all have something to offer. I think what the historian does... I don't, well, let me put it this way. I don't think that history teaches us anything. I mean, historians can teach us things. It's a storytelling that teaches us things. There's nothing there in history as such that is a lesson for, for today. But historians can tell stories. And I think what at least I hope what historians do really well is tell good stories, tell very full, complex, um, historically specific, geographically complex stories that can resonate and think, get us thinking today about different ways of doing things. There's another thing that I think that historians can do, and that is historians can show that it wasn't, it's not always like that. So in other words, we kind of cut through those universals. Historians hate universals. We cut through those and say, well, it doesn't, it wasn't always like that. It doesn't always have to be like that. And that, I think, makes it, in a sense, an optimistic profession. Can you think of an example from your recent work where you, you really have identified something that we've, we've got used to now, but which really doesn't have to be that way or didn't have to be that way. Well, I'll give you an example from uh, some of my recent work that I wrote a history of rapists, um, a history of how perpetrators of sexual violence um, understood what they were doing and how they were understood by people at the time. And when I was writing that book, time and again, people said to me, ah, but in wartime, rape is inevitable. You know, that this is a universal, um, it's inevitable in, in, in wartime. And the kind of flinging up at the uh, their hands, okay, it's universal, you know, we can't do anything about it, so, you know, let's just move on. What I found interesting is that, well, actually, it's not universal. In many kinds of armed conflicts, there is very, very low rape, if any at all. Other times, it's really huge. So in other words, it's not a universal, and therefore, we can do something about it. And actually, we can hold people accountable for it. I've heard that uh, you hate the title of your book on rape. The American title is Rape, Colon, Sex, Violence, History. What's wrong with that? I, I don't like the title. Um, I don't like the main title um, because the main title is simply rape. And that's not what the book's about. The book is a history of rapists. It's a history of perpetrators of violence. You know, what? why I wrote the book was I was really actually quite annoyed by the fact that so many people when writing about rape wrote about women, rape victims, as though rape was about the victims. Actually, the thing about rape is it's about a perpetrator. Now, some of perpetrators, of course, are women, but the vast majority of perpetrators are men. So I wanted to write a book about rapists, 
about the way they conceived what they were doing, who they were, how they changed over time, and why it wasn't inevitable that we have uh, high levels of rape. Um, And of course, having a title which is called rape implies that it's also going to be the victims talking. Now, the victims do talk in my book, but really the book is about perpetrators. Um, I was really conscious of the fact that, you know, we need rape is not something intrinsic to masculinity. There's that horrible saying of the 1970s and 1980s that all men are either rapists, rape fantasists, or this is the big category, beneficiaries of a rape culture. You know, I wanted to go totally against that, that sort of rape is something that is the antithesis of masculinity. And also that rape is something that actually men need to take on board. Um, you know, every time we have a case of sexual violence, actually it besmirches masculinity more generally. There's been this awful tendency to think of rape as actually a problem for women. And it's not a problem for women. You know, we don't need to buy the latest lock and sort of shut our doors and close all our windows and lock ourselves up and watch TV. And of course, on TV, all we see is rape scenes. Um, You know, rape is a problem for men. And that title, you know, rape, actually just doesn't do that. This is a book about rapists. So are you saying that, in fact, it would be wrong to seek an integrated analysis in some ways that 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 whilst one may want to give the victim's voice uh, a hearing so that the victim is not lost the victim is not is not going to help you explain the crime to understand the crime you have to look at the perpetrator. Yes, to understand the crime, you have to look at the perpetrator. Otherwise, you end up in the sort of invidious position of actually blaming women for their own violation. I think that's very, very important. And I think in so much writing on sexual violence, it has gone totally that other direction. And, you know, women are actually left to to think that in some ways they are responsible or that the the problem of rape is to get women into learning self-defense, get women being strong, things like that. No, the problem of rape is about the problem of perpetrators. In fear of a, a cultural history, am I right in, in saying that, that you're arguing that what were once very focused and visceral fears have been replaced by a more diffuse anxiety, which is in some ways more undermining of our human condition. There's a big difference between fear and anxiety. And as you say, I do argue that in the modern period, there has been a greater emphasis on anxiety states. In fear, you see, you identify, you know what the enemy is, or you think you know what the enemy is, and you fight against that that enemy. That is very, very different from this kind of free-floating anxiety where you know that there's something terribly wrong and that you're under threat, but you don't know what it is or you can't identify something as, you know, as responsible for it. And that 
um, has a really important impact on the way you respond to it. In fear states, you identify an enemy. Now, it may be a wrong enemy, like immigrants or something like that, but you identify and then you group together and you fight it. In anxiety states, you actually don't. You don't know what the enemy is. You can't identify it. Everything seems to be happening to you. And so you retreat into yourself. So it's a much more apolitical um, state and a much more difficult thing to work against. This is one of the reasons why I actually argue explicitly that governments actually encourage, or various periods of history, have encouraged us to think of certain fears as anxieties. I'll give you an example of this, and that is during the... um, the concerns about uh, nuclear armaments that you know, governments, the British government at least, went to a great at- attempts to try and convince people who were marching against the proliferation of these world-destroying missiles to convince them that actually the problem is not the missiles the threat. The problem is, oh, you're simply anxious generally about life and employment and things like that. So in other words, trying to convert um, a fear into an anxiety, which of course is much more apolitical and much more difficult to to fight or do something against. Mm -hmm. So fear can create community, can create a group, but anxiety is more disabling and more isolating. Yeah. Fear can create good or bad not necessarily good communities, but can um, cause people to uh, solidarity, uh, get together to do something about it. Whereas anxieties call you sort of to lie on the couch and say, help, you know, put put your hands over your head and and, um, very isolating and very individual thing. Mm. You've talked about rape and one doesn't have to look at your work very long to feel that there's a very dark thread running through it, human dismemberment, soldiers' pleasure in killing, the history of pain, of fear and anxiety, as you say, of rape, the militarization of society, even your most recent book, What It Means to Be Human, which sounds as if it might offer a break in the clouds, is full of uh, of groups of humans treating other groups as though they weren't really human. What is it that draws you to these topics? That's a hard one, you know. I think... um, I think sometimes we don't know what draws us to these topics, but certainly these, for me anyway, these are topics that involve me as as a woman, as a citizen of a nation state and as a global citizen. I think violence is something that we all grapple with um, and and actually we find it difficult to talk about. Um, I deal only with British and American societies. It's In a sense, it's much easier to say, oh, violence out there, someone else is doing it. But I look at what we do, the kind of violences that we commit, and it's part of a way of trying to, well, basically improve the world, improve the world that I um, live in. And I think that's what's important. I also think that these are big, exciting, difficult, complex questions and that's intellectually exciting. I mean, I know that's probably not an adequate response, but it's, it's the honest response. I'd like to turn to historical experiences of a different kind, your own personal ones, because I, I read that uh, you grew up as a, a child of missionaries in some fairly tough places and, uh, and had some fairly uh, tough experiences as a, a young person. I think you were in Haiti, amongst other places. And I'm wondering if this has influenced your your choices to, to study some of the darker aspects of humanity? 
I think um, one of the things I always tell friends is that, um, you know, I don't really want to go on the psychoanalytical couch right yet. Not quite yet. But I think it's inevitable. I mean, what we experience in childhood, of course, affects our our lives and and our worldview. I think in my own particular case, growing up in Zambia, Chikankata, growing up in Solomon Islands, and then Aiti for um, most of my childhood, much of my childhood, is it did make me acutely aware of violence. Um, it did make me acutely aware of um, the privilege that I have um, in uh, in my own own life. It made me aware of a, I guess, I guess to put it really um, quite brutally, a sort of social conscience, and that I think is is very important. It also, though, and I I actually remind myself of this quite a lot. It also reminded me, of, um, it made me remember that. These are not only cultures of violence and poverty. These are also cultures with rich language, rich music, rich food, rich oral and literary traditions. So it's very, very easy to kind of have a one-sided um, image of uh, of some of these extremely poor countries. But you know, there is also this other side to it, which is beautiful and vibrant and 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 worth sort of um, celebrating. Mm. Is there a consistent or a core set of ideas that shapes your approach to the subject matter or or have your or do they adjust with each, each does your approach change with each each book It's a really interesting question I think they really do change very much depending on on the subject um I, I can see myself how I have moved in time from my very early work, which was very, very much um, economic history and social history. Um, and certainly I've changed over time. I now have a much more cultural historical approach to what I do. I've also become much more um, interested in philosophical approaches to history. So there have been those changes. I think it really just depends on what it is I'm trying to explore. And that kind of governs what um, what methodology and what approach I take to the subject. It also, of course, changes a lot the kind of primary sources I use when I'm writing um, these, these books. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit, of, I mean, your books are always... Uh, I feel characterized by their amazing range of sources. And whenever you look at reviews, it's, it's, it's one of the many things you get praised for, which is this incredibly rich body of voices that you uncover. I mean, do you have some secret method or a, an army of research workers? Or how, how do you go about finding those voices? The most um, exciting thing is going into an archive and opening up these boxes full of the, these material that often you really don't know what you're going to find and working your way through it and seeing, if you like, these people um, coming to life literally before you, before your eyes. When I was doing all my, um, I read a number of books on the history of warfare and I was reading a lot of letters and diaries and I found them just really fascinating because, of course, some of these letters and diaries are written by people who had committed you know, massive atrocities, uh, British and American soldiers who had killed lots and lots of people, including women and children. And I, I was always struck by reading these things, just, you know, someone who in one part of their diary could be describing something which is quite literally atrocious. And then another part, then I'd be reading their letters and 
it was all about you know kisses to Maisie, you know their daughter, and how much I love you, and what the weather is like, and and you know dreams and hopes for the future. So it's the complexity of these people, and of course to read um, to actually get that complexity, you do have to read a lot. But um, uh, I mean, I joke to to friends and family that you know one of the greatest things that happened to me was having to do correspondence school um, as a child because, of course, uh, once you finish the pack of you know, lessons, you can go out and play. And so, of course, I became a very fast reader. Um, so I think that really does help. Do you ever feel guilty at empathising with these voices and and love letters and so on of people whom you? No, also committed great atrocities. I mean, no, is that a problem? I don't think that empathy or sympathy for these people is a problem at all. In fact, mm. I think that it's precisely that they are human that makes it actually bearable, that makes one realize that they're not some monster out there and therefore they can be reformed. And indeed, they have wonderful aspects of their lives where they are loving husbands and fathers. And that actually gives me hope. And I think that empathizing and um, and trying to understand that that contradiction between cruelty and immense gentleness and love and affection is actually at the heart of what um, what we need to do when we're thinking about bad things. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Mark Roseman. I'm talking today to Joanna Burke, Professor of History at Birkbeck College, University of London. She is a prolific and prize-winning author whose books get to the heart of our contemporary experience. Her studies about war, about fear, and about rape were followed more recently by The Story of Pain, From Prayer to Painkillers, and Deep Violence, Military Violence, War Play, and the Social Life of Weapons. Let's talk for a moment about your book, The Story of Pain, From Prayer to Painkillers. And this this book's a historical examination of humanity's relationship with pain. And I'd like to quote something that you say uh, fairly early on in the book, where you're, you're staking out what you, you think about pain. You say that sufferers of pain are entitled to describe their pain as though it were an independent entity in their body or an entity that attacks from outside. But for the historian sitting down to write a history of pain, Assuming that pain has a definitive ontological presence is to confuse presentation of sensation with linguistic representations. Are you saying that pain isn't real, it's all in our heads? No, I'm absolutely not saying that. Um, What I am saying, though, is that 
if we're trying to, pain is a very complicated thing. I mean, we, each of us, we know when we're in pain. It's very difficult to know when someone else is in pain. And I think it is important to be really clear about what we are, what we are doing when we are talking or writing about pain. I think it's useful to think of pain in sort of adverbal adverbial terms. So pain is the way we experience something. It's not what we are experiencing. You mentioned then just the ontological character. It's a fancy word for simply saying that um, that you know there is this risk of making pain into kind of this abstract noun where pain has agency as opposed to the person in pain. Your know, pain is what people say is pain in themselves. And we need to take that very, very seriously. So pain is the way they are experiencing something. I, I think that you, you've you called your approach radical constructionism. Or am I, uh, am I inventing that? <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're inventing it. I think some other people have called uh, uh-huh. it radical constructionism. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. In that case, I won't ask you to define it. <laughs> yeah, because I, I would not call it that. Okay. Uh, sort of something that seems similar to me in some ways in a different book in, in What It Means to Be Human, there too you set out to show the instability of definitions of who is truly human. Can you explain what you mean by this? When I was writing, when I set out doing work on what it means to be human, I was struck at the extent to which peoples in the past and indeed today would, the the levels to which they would go to try and differentiate humans from non-human or subhuman or other categories. I think it's very useful to think about the question of what it means to be human in terms of the Mobius strip. The Mobius strip is, it's named after a 19th century mathematician. Um, And basically, if you just get a long piece of paper and sort of um, twist it 180 degrees and then um, glue the two ends together, what you have is the strip, which is doesn't have an inside or an outside. It doesn't have hierarchies. And what people do in the past and today is they kind of tie a knot in that strip and say, there, that's where the human starts and this is where the animal begins. Okay, But that, of course, knot is tied at different places and different times. So, you know, there is this kind of very fluidity of, you know, who is human, what is the animal, and where we tie that knot. I think it's a useful way of, of thinking about it. And it's also important because the fluidity and the quickness within which that um, those definitions shift. Mm. So are you sceptical about notions of human nature? I mean, are, is what you're emphasizing the ability of different human societies at different times to radically rethink who they are and what what, how the body works, what makes it tick, and who is human and what is the essence of the, of the human? Yes. I don't think there's an essential um, human nature. We can see historically that you know what who is considered human changes over time, and what is considered a human trait also changes dramatically over time. So there's not this essential humanness. Um, you know, sometimes even animals are included in that. Other times, certain Homo sapiens are excluded from it. So it really changes dramatically, and the criteria from which we actually make the decision of who is fully human also 
undergoes dramatic shifts. And I only look at you know a couple, two and a half centuries, 18th century to the present. Of course, it's even more dramatic if you look at a longer period of time. But that's what's interesting, the rapidity with, with, with which these things change. But are there really no givens in body and brain that govern our behaviour? Is it not rather an embattled position to emphasise so much our our ability to reshape ourselves in an age when we're discovering more and more about the biology and the hard wiring that makes humans tick? Yeah, I mean, I'm not one of those um, historians who who ignores the body, the physiological body. I believe the physiological body is exceptionally important, and we actually need to take it extremely seriously. I mean, all of us, um, no matter who we are, of course, we are composed of um, muscle, blood, fat, bone, etc., all encased in skin and decorated, if you like, with hair and and nails and things like that. That is the physiological body. What in interests me and and sorry and we also understand what that means to have a physiological body um, that has an impact upon what we think mm. however it is patently also the case that the way we interpret that physiological body um, the neurons that fire the the nerves um, and whatever that act sympathetically um, the way we understand it actually dramatically changes what we give value to and how we interpret um, what we give meaning to in society and other ways in which current neurology and so on is actually in a way helping or supporting your position. It seemed to me that you you were able to use their theories as evidence of the way that our notion of ourselves actually becomes part of how we we operate. Yeah. Every person within any society, any intellectual, actually, you know, encourages and develops and, and draws upon the theories of their society, whether it's a, um, a writer in the 18th century who's using humorial theory or whether it's someone in the 21st century who uses neurological theories. You know, we all draw upon these things to tell our stories. And what's very, very interesting, I think, about in the current situation, when you get things like brain imaging and, and things like that, which are really changing the way we think about the body and society is that you know we can use those um those ways of thinking in our own work when i was working on pain um which is the last book it was very interesting the neurological theories about pain which in a sense um disembody or take away the individual suffering almost totally you know herself you know the individual sufferer becomes just one microsecond um part of the brain sort of lighting up um which of course for the person in pain that's actually not how that's not actually what happens. So I think it's really, really interesting to think about why is it that these neurological understandings of pain have become or are becoming very, very dominant when they go against actually people's and pain's actual experiences of suffering. Over the last hundred years, we've seen world wars, the Holocaust, Hiroshima, the gulags, Rwanda, 9-11. So the, the time for naive belief in progress has, has, has passed. But it seems to me that you offer some powerful stabs at our remaining secret underbelly of optimism, raising questions about things that we assumed really were progress. And one is your skepticism in what it means to be human about human rights. Can you explain what's, what's wrong with them? 
I think it's very problematic to have a concept which can be used to destroy lives as easily as it can be used to liberate people. And I think human rights is one of those languages. It has become ubiquitous in our society and clearly historically as well as today in current um, um, situations, human rights is a liberationist um, ideology. I almost said theology, but ideology that can and does immense good. What I find problematic is that it also can and does immense harm. Indeed, I would challenge anyone to think of any armed conflict carried out by Western nations that is not justified in some way by humanitarian and human rights discourse. So it's kind of a non-committal for the good. And I think that this kind of abstract notion of human rights is simply can doesn't actually necessarily necessarily, um, engage with issues of um, equality, issues of uh, justice. And I think that is a deeply problematic thing. It's not not necessary uh, for human rights, but that's how human rights language is being used. Can you give an example of of this kind of usage of, of human rights language? Well, the language of human rights and humanitarianism is used to justify torture. The language of humanitarianism and human rights is used to justify any number of military interventions where so-called collateral damage is extremely high. Human rights is, is used in a litigious way, a very individualistic way. Um, I think there are just vast numbers of ways that this has become a problematic thing within our society. Human rights is also used as a as a weapon of the West against other societies. That is deeply problematic. Mm-hmm. That links to a, one of the sort of most powerful elements of deep violence, military violence, war play, and the social life of weapons, where you look at the role of law. Uh, which which we perhaps assume is a, is is taming war, um, but you're arguing that the use of law uh, is often facilitating war. Yes, the laws of of war um, are one of the main mechanisms since indeed the 1860s to legitimate our armed conflict and to encourage armed conflict. The the language of law is what not only gives the sort of language, the symbols and 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 justification for war, but it also facilitates war. It is a way of encouraging intervention, um, armed intervention into other other countries. I think that you know, particularly in in this country, in the states, particularly since uh, uh, the Gulf War of nineteen ninety and nineteen ninety one, lawyers be entered and became were pushed, if you like, into the heart of law or of war making, and they are there to, as indeed top military um, uh, senior military um, officers admitted they are there to facilitate the violence they are there to as one senior military officer said they are there not to restrain us but actually to tell us that we can do something when we might think that we cannot do so they are there again as yet another senior officer said they are there to serve the client's interests and the clients in this case is of course the military that's that's what law is doing currently in armed conflicts. 
You show the links in many ways, the, the increasing links between warfare and civilian societies. And one disturbing example that you give of the way humanitarian restrictions don't do what we think they do can be seen in the treatment of dum-dum bullets, uh, also known as hollow point bullets, dum-dum bullets expanding on impact and have horrific uh, results on the body. And I, I thought they'd been banned, but can you, you tell us what you uncovered? Yes. In 1899, at the Hague Conference, there on the table was an attempt to ban dum-dum bullets. These are hollow point bullets that expand in, on, on contact with the human body and cause massive injuries. Um, British um, diplomats and American diplomats argued against it them being banned. Other countries argued for them being banned. In the end, they were banned for international conflicts. Now, there are two things I find interesting about the, this banning. First is, is that they are only banned for international um, engagements with signatories of the, of the, of the convention. So that, that makes them quite legitimate in, in most or many uh, forms of, of con- conflict. Second is that they were already obsolete by the time they were banned. And the, and the British and Americans knew this, of course. Um, at the time they were banned in 1899, they were already obsolete because, of course, they had um, invented new missiles, new weapons that, because of increase in velocity, actually had almost identical uh, effect as dum-dum bullets, um, but uh, they were legal, so they were already obsolete when they were banned. And the third thing is that, of course, they can be used in civilian uh, uh, contexts. So in America, in this country, for example, uh, dum-dum bullets are, are used by, by the police forces and other um, armed groups in, in, in this country. And they are used um, for uh, quite legitimately in, in international law. And I, I was quite shocked. I, I, I there were a whole series of examples of police officers and others speaking out for the for the value and the virtue of using these uh, these weapons. Yeah, there, there are some. The the explanations they give is that, of course, in in um, dramatic and and very violent situations in in uh, policing. Dum-dum bullets are less likely to ricochet and therefore less likely to hurt um, third parties because, of course, they, as they euphemistically say, they dissipate all the energy inside the body, um, causing these massive wounds. So those are the, the legit, those are the explanations given by the armed forces. What's inter- what I found very interesting when I was looking at the debates in the 1960s um, and 70s about allowing dum-dum bullets in civilian um, contexts is that... Um, it was a lot of it was part of a compromise between the police forces um, and um, local governments um, and local governments actually tried to resist them being used and there was actually public outcry against them being used but they actually came to agreements with police forces partly because they um, they wanted to include they wanted to encourage um, more African Americans for example in the police force so it was all part of a deal done between police forces and and local governments that you know they did this this deal and police forces really loved them because this is a show of great, great power and weaponry, um, etc. Moving back to the international sphere, summing up the way in which law is increasingly being instrumentalized in supporting military actions, you use a phrase which uh, very much struck me of the humanitarian military project. Can you say what you mean by this? 
The humanitarian military complex means something very, very simple. It simply means that humanitarianism has become, in the West, the chief justification for armed conflicts. And you won't find an armed conflict that is not using that rhetoric. That's a really devastating thing, I think, mm-hmm. for people who are trying to actually build just and less violent worlds. Because the one language that we have, humanitarianism, is exactly the language that's been co-opted by the military. Mm-hmm. But presumably, it's not a language we want to relinquish. No, it's not a language we want to relinquish. Absolutely. But we do want to, we do need to think very carefully what uses is being made of that. You know, humanitarian law comes down, um, you know, really, really hard on murder by machete, Rwanda, etc. It is actually extremely kind and generous to the high tech powers, you know, murder by nuclear weapons or targeted assassinations. Um, You know, that is a deep problem in our society. You know, people always say to me, ah, yes, but we had successes, humanitarian successes in banning landmines and absolutely fantastic um, um, uh, decision. But of course, landmines are basically um, a really cheap killing technology compared to what the high-tech military industrial complex is able to use. So I think that this is a deeply problematic thing um, that we we need to pay attention to when we are talking about humanitarianism. Who is the human? Just last year in the British forces, armed forces, they introduced for the first time, first time in about 50 years, a new sidearm, the Glock 17. The newspapers were just full of these are life-saving, are weapons, life-saving. Whose lives? They're not life-saving. In other words, the people who are going to be killed by the Glock 17s are not fully human. They don't really have lives. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Mark Roseman. I'm talking today to Joanna Burke, Professor of History at Birkbeck College, University of London. She's a prolific and prize-winning author whose books get to the heart of our contemporary experience. Her studies about war, about fear and about rape were followed more recently by the story of pain from prayer to painkillers and deep violence, military violence, war play and the social life of weapons. I read that the floor of your office is covered with old-fashioned file cars. Can you tell me something about your writing process? Mark, you're going to really embarrass me here. You see, this is something I tell my PhD students. Don't do what I do, um, but do what I say. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I started off writing 25 years ago, and at that stage, you know, I was using these cards to take notes. It's just... Um, 
yeah, cards, take notes. And I've continued doing that. I write on the computer, of course. But, I've, you know, you can't teach old dogs new tricks. I write all my things on these cards, then I shuffle them up and I write from from those cards. It's not a um it, it's it's not something I recommend other people to do, but um it's actually the way I find it able myself able to write. There's something about the physicality of it that I, I really enjoy. I like touching it. I like the yeah, the physicality of these things, just like I like it when I go to the archive and I touch the documents as opposed to reading them online, which I, of course, have to do a huge amount. But there's something about um, touching the documents and coming home from the archive and, you know, my hands are sort of stained black and with all dust, you know, human dust, um, ink and dust from the past on my hands. And it's, I, I enjoy that, that physicality. Do you have a, a sense of an audience or someone you're writing for? I mean, I think I, I saw once that you, you said that you, you're writing for your students. I love my students. Um, at Birkbeck, um, we we teach um, a wide range of students and they really do inspire me. And I have to say, I, um, I'm grateful to them because I try out ideas on them. And, and I think it's very, very important that you know, for any academic, that we maintain the really high standards of our profession. But on the other hand, and not but, and on the other hand, we um, are able to speak to people so that people actually want to read us, and that people can understand our ideas, even if we have to really work at making complex ideas um, understandable, whether by telling stories or somehow getting letting people in to the world of the intellect. That's that's a really difficult thing to do. My students help me very, very much to do that. I'm really, I always thank my students in all my books. Are you ever writing in dialogue with people in the past? I mean, in the story of pain, you you have a Victorian doctor who's who, despite the fact that it's clearly 19th century language, seems wonderfully contemporary in his perceptions and and uh, conclusions. Peter Latham, Peter Latham, um, I surprised myself actually by becoming. Uh, engaging with him. I mean, he is a Victorian patriarch. I mean, all of my work, all of my books have been, up until that book, have been sort of involved with um, listening to the oppressed, to bringing their voices up, women's voices, the oppressed, um, downtrodden in our society, minorities. You know, these are the voices I've always engaged with and I've made them shout. I try to make those voices shout. Then I started to work on this book, History of Pain, and there's this man, Peter Latham, who... Kept, I kept waking up with him in the back of my head. Um, you know, Victorian patriarch, not the kind of man I, I, I really deal with. He's um, the um, physician to the queen. You know, a highly eminent man, really pompous. Um, he used to have these excruciating headaches, but you'd never guess that from his writings. You know, very, very manly and very Victorian. But I guess the reason I engaged with him is that he was kind of asking some of the same questions that I was asking. In other words, what is pain? Um, you know, how can we reach out and touch that invisible area of pain on someone else? And how can we understand that? And he, I think we disagreed. He's dead, long dead. <laughs> but, um, but I still like the fact that I actually think that if he was still alive, we would definitely disagree. But actually, I think we would like each other and have a wonderful conversation over dinner. <laughs> 
I think I'm right in saying you describe yourself as a feminist historian. What, what does that mean to you? I am a feminist historian in the sense that I care about equality. I care about justice. I care about fighting for a better world for women as well as for men. And I guess I'm impassioned by the struggles of women and men, feminist men and feminist women in the past. And they have been inspirational for me, um, partly because, of course, they had a much harder time than I've had or people, women today have had. And I, I get inspiration from, from what they have tried to do and, and from the way that they try to link up the women's rights with the rights of other minorities. So it's not simply about gender. It's not simply about sex. It's about what it means to be human. And, you know, one of the things I do try to do is say, well, what it means to be human is to be a woman. And, and I think that's what I mean by feminist um, historian. I don't, I know what I don't mean. I don't mean that I take contemporary feminist ideologies and positions and read them back in the past. But I do, I take inspiration from, from women's struggles in the past and men's struggles on behalf of women as well. I mean, quite a lot of the themes you tackle, particularly obviously the, the war and military ones, have traditionally been the preserve of, of male historians. So were you consciously trying to bring a different perspective or did you have to battle to uh, assert your, your, your right to a place at the table? Military history is, and it still is, a very male-dominated part of our profession. But um, And, of course, that, um, that does bring uh, different uh, views, different perspectives. Um, particularly um, interesting for me when I started to do military history was the degree to which some, a minority, historians of the military coming at it from a very, very explicitly pro-military position, indeed are funded by the military, even though it shocked me to discover they weren't mentioning this in their books, which I, I find um, I, I find wrong. Mm. I don't think that women come to something with an innately different perspective. I do think, though, that certain forms of history, such as social and cultural history, have been more welcoming to female scholars, and therefore female scholars have, have managed to excel in those fields. I don't think there's anything innate about that, but it's definitely the case. And I also think that as a woman coming into, or when I started, certainly an extremely male-dominated field, it actually gave me some uh, freedom to ask different questions. And I found that very, very liberating, in fact. I mean, one of the uh, findings of your earlier work was uh, that there was a sort of almost hidden uh, degree to which uh, combatants embraced the violence of war and expressed pleasure in it and compared it to the high sexual thrill and, and so on and so forth. When you demonstrated that, when you wrote about that, was there a sort of pushback uh, against it or, or, or did you find people responding and saying, yes, you're, you're, the, you're the person who's actually voiced the experience and others haven't? 
The book An Intimate History of Killing caused a real stir. Oh, you know, I had people who really hated me and also people who really loved me. So, um, you know, it did create a real debate, which is fantastic because that's what we really want. That is what we want. I guess what, what I was interested in is that, you know, I was reading the same letters and diaries as other military historians are reading. I probably read, I know I read a lot more of them than others, but, you know, they were basically this, this similar uh, corpus of material. And what interested me is that a military historian would read, let's say, a diary. And on one um, day in that diary, the person would say, um, I just came back from, from, from battle and, and I'm, I'm, I'm really scared. And you, you could actually literally see their hand shaking. You know, their, their handwriting was shaking. Um, I, 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 I am a coward. I, I don't know what to do. Um, and and um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to break down. I've got diarrhea and I'm vomiting and, and I, I can't cope. That same diary, that same person, a few weeks later or even a few weeks earlier, would say, just came back from battle. Oh, it was wonderful. <laughs> I'm a man. It was the most exhilarating time of my life, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what interested me is when the military historian read the first account, the shell-shocked account, they would say, ah, shell-shocked, poor guy. When they would read the account saying, yes, it was fantastic, they would say, ah, he doesn't mean it. He's shell-shocked or he's writing for his mother or someone else. And they would dismiss it. Now, I mean, I think we need to take emotions very seriously. People are complex and we need to take seriously that the same person might be exhilarated in one occasion and absolutely traumatized on another occasion. And I think taking them seriously is very, very important. Now, obviously, you know, genre matters. They are going to say different things when they're writing home to their mum as when they're writing home to their father or when they're doing their diary. We need to take that into account. We need to take into account the audience for this. But we still need to take them seriously in their complexity. You, you finish what it, what it means to be human calling for a politics, and I'm quoting, that is as committed to uniqueness of all life forms as much to the creative, exhilarating desire and struggle for community and communion, authenticity and certainty. That suggests that despite all the dark themes that you work on, you're an optimist. I am an optimist. I think um, I'm partly an optimist because I'm a historian. I think as an historian, we can see that things don't have to be the same. Things change. Um, they can change for the better. I'm also an optimist in that I think that we, part of what it means to be human is to struggle, to struggle to create better worlds for ourselves, for our loved ones, for our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, that we can embrace the struggle um, I don't believe in authenticity. I don't believe in community. I don't believe in these things, but I do believe in the struggling for them and the dream of them. Um, and that's what we, we do as humans. And that's what we do particularly well as humans. So, yeah, I'm, I'm an optimist. And, um, and I think we have reason to be optimistic. I think one of the most devastating things in the current political situation is the idea of lots of people that we can't change anything. We have to keep reiterating to ourselves and to other people that actually we can change things. Um, and optimism is, if you like, a political position as much as anything else. 
I've been speaking today with Joanna Burke. Thank you for being with us. It's been lovely talking to you. This is Mark Roseman for Profiles. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Profiles.